1: Hi everyone, this is Victoria from Rochdale and you're listening to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, what is the best way to cook and eat a potato? I'm going to say hash browns. Okay, here comes the show and remember, question everything.
0: hello everybody and welcome to dame baptiste questions everything a podcast with myself comedian writer and occasional actor dame baptiste my producer friend howard cohen aka the hello and a mix of very special guests posed the questions that need to be asked. And we are talking everything from.
2: Well, we're talking everything from Victoria, from Rochdale's question What is the best way to cook and eat a potato? It's the old Ishan Akbar question, Dane, from episode Ishan, five the
0: Ishan Akbar conundrum. Yeah. Um, yeah um, it's come up again, which is fair enough. It's a, it's a staple part of uh, the modern diet, slow release carbohydrate, very starchy stuff. Um, and by that token, I think. There is no right way to eat a cook and eat a potato. I would say if you are one of the people in this world fortunate enough to get your hands on something that's edible, then you can devour that how you see fit. Um, me personally, I think that uh, potato works the same way as dairy does. Uh, different seasonalities and occasions will call for different types of preparation. Yeah, that's a good So point. a roast potato might be good for a weekend or for a roast, maybe not uh, a midweek meal or for a lunchtime meal. As would mash would be... Uh, ideal as well if maybe you have elderly members of the family joining you for dinner
2: a fair, um, a fair point i, I yeah. love th- i love those chips that are so crispy you know they're basically crisps Or well, like thrice
0: thrice cooked ones yeah like you get with steak oh, oh yeah there we go uh
2: but there you go victoria there's some answers for you uh on potatoes but suffice to say on this podcast we ask and answer all the questions don't we do
0: Absolutely, no question is too big, too small, too starchy or too carby. And if you do enjoy the show, please write and review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and you'll never miss an episode. Or you can subscribe to us on Acast, the world's biggest podcast network, where you can hear all of the very special questions being asked and answered by our very special guests. With that being said, on today's show is an Irish satirist, musician, podcaster, author and TV presenter. He is well known as one half of the Irish comedy hip hop duo, The Rubber Bandits, who wear plastic shopping bags as masks to consider identities and he has hosted his own podcast featuring interviews and coverage of major social issues and has also published two collections of short stories and produced the bbc3 documentary series blind boy undestroys the world if you don't know by now then you're not very good at clues and hints but we welcome <laughs> to the show blind boy
1: what's the crack then how are you getting on howard yeah good night we're good man how are you how's life i'm good i'm good I, 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 am i not going to get asked a potato question
0: you can, of course, It would be remiss of us for not. I mean, get stuck in, mate. What I you thought fighting? Howard, I thought this was deliberately planned by you, Howard. It was <laughs> initially kind of culturally insensitive, but it's just.
1: I, I love the fact that it wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> at all. No, do you know what?
2: I, I, listen, it's just to let you know one thing. Getting these questions from you is definitely a ball ache of my life uh, every week. So please keep sending them in. Uh, but these they, they're picked quite randomly,
1: Blind Boy. Yeah, so, yeah. You know? <laughs> but no, but I love that. I do enjoy the fact that, like, you brought on the Irish person and then you don't ask <laughs> <to> the potato
0: question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, which is a more exclusionary. So, um, yeah, the floor is, Blind Boy, what do you think the best way is to cook and eat a
1: potato? Um, Jesus, like you said, Dan, you can do anything with it. I mean... I mean, I, it, it, there is the issue with potatoes that okay, they're full of carbs. Like so, whatever way you eat a potato, I don't think there's any real healthy, not healthy, but yeah.
0: But then again, they, I mean, it, chips, it, are chips, chips are great. Chips are so like, I mean, good. Like, they're like, like, so good.
1: Due respect. You can't have a problem with chips. Like you really can't. Every, everyone enjoys chips. Mm. And then mash. Mash is lovely. <laughs> you can fuck up a mash. You can fuck up a mash. How do you, like have you there, fuck if, up mash? If if you're using the wrong type of potato. I mean, that's the thing. Like, there's all different types of potato. For different important. occasions, right? Yeah. For exactly, different for occasions. One consistencies.
0: Is, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, man. You you, you educate us.
1: One of them is good for, for mashing. One of them is good for roasting. One of them is good for frying. So if you mm. use a type of potato, I can't, like... Cars Pink is one that we have in Ireland. If you use one of them and it's meant for chipping and you use that for mashing, you end up with something that's a little bit rubbery and not fluffy. Mm -hmm. So it's all about what you do with it. But um, yeah, the reason I piped up on the potato thing is, I'm sure there's tons of British listeners now who just love to hear the word potato in an (laughs) Irish accent. And that's absolutely, (laughs) absolutely fine. (laughs) And I understand that. But one thing I would like to say, because you don't, this is the beauty of podcasts. This is why podcasts are fantastic. Yeah. Because this is like you lads have an independent podcast. I get to say something that not a lot of British people get to hear, Mm. which is if you're speaking to an Irish person in real life, just be careful around the laughing at the potato thing, Mm. because Most Irish people won't get offended by it. We won't because we understand that when when British people laugh at the word potato, that there's no malice intended. It's just a funny way to say the word. But in Ireland, in the 1840s, we had what's called the Great Potato Famine, Mm. which in Ireland we actually view as a colonial genocide, Mm. where our population went from 8 million people to 4 million people. Two million of those died and it was a direct result of uh, English colonization, English policy towards food, exporting food, laws in Ireland that subjugated the native Irish, the penal laws. So just be careful yeah. when you're speaking to an Irish person, when you start hilariously laughing at how Irish people pronounce the word potato, that the context of that to an Irish person is very, very different. Even if you don't intend it to be offensive. That's
2: very important thing to hear it's probably time for a question isn't it mate as the format of this show dictates
0: absolutely we are on a great great role uh, blind boys are very esteemed guests we invite you to ask the first question it can be any question you like which we'd like to discuss for 15 minutes then Howard here would like to pose you a question which we will also discuss for 15 minutes and then in a surprise twist of fate I would also like to pose you a question to discuss and then we'd like for you to tell our listeners about all of the great work you've done and uh, where they can find out about more of your good work such as your podcast, etc. How does that sound? Cool. Um, uh, cool, man. The floor is yours to
1: ask the first question. So the first question, it's, it's kind of broad. Uh, cool. What does music mean to you?
2: Oh, lovely question, man. <clears throat> lovely question. What inspired that
1: question? I fucking love music. I love music with all <laughs> yeah. my heart. When I listen to music, it feels like my soul getting wanked by God.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great way of putting it, man. That's a great way of putting it. And and the thing is, you got to put
2: that on a t shirt. Sure, not just on a t shirt. That's
0: the great thing about music is that some people may may perceive that as being something quite crude. But if you were to relay that melodically, most people would say, "No, yeah, I totally relate to that." Yeah, I totally relate to that. So it's, it's a really good question. It's a
2: powerful thing, isn't it? And and you know. I think, I think that you could. <laughs> let's start with the negative bit first, because that's how I work. But like, <laughs> do you ever meet those people who don't say they don't really like music? Yeah, like yeah. you know, you're done with that person, right? Like there can't be much of a future for me, anyway. No offense,
0: social sociopaths. I think it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a. a they I mean, that to me is very telling of someone who may have somewhat psychopathic tendencies.
1: It's a bit odd. Sometimes yeah. I do respect the honesty of it though. I get, Because I yeah. think like everyone listens to music until they're like 24 and then after 24 that's when people divide into people who actually like music and people who don't like it. And yeah. then I think like the mass market do you know the way mm-hmm. CDs are still for sale? Do you know the way you can go to Tesco and you can buy a CD and yeah. this still exists? Those are for people who don't like music. <laughs> Those <laughs> yeah. are for people who are like I'm gonna get a CD for the car because it's cold. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I well,
0: mean? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a clear distinction between people who hear music and listen to music. Yes. That I think you're absolutely right. There is there are people who can passively take in what is being relayed on commercial radio stations and not question it. And yep. there are people who, like you said yourself and people like myself, who See music as a form of escapism. It's an amazing tool for projection. It's a, a, a amazing coping mechanism. Yes, it, I find that it, it allows me to articulate emotions and, yes. and centers senses that I wouldn't be able to do through conventional methods. Yes, and so by that token, if I do, if I am exposed to music that doesn't provide that for me, then it's not something I can enjoy. Well, I think a lot of people aren't particularly discerning about the music they hear, and they just kind of go along with it. Mm. So, yeah, yeah,
1: I, and I that's think, beautiful uh, what you say there, Dean, when you're talking about how it helps you articulate emotions because you think of, like, if you if you have a breakup or something, or if you're sad about something, words won't help you, but music will help you to understand the emotions that you're going through. Like the what I love about music is is Music is symmetrical vibrations of air that make you feel emotion. Yeah. So the way that we would look at a lovely painting, a pattern, the way that um, symmetrical patterns, when we see them, are like, wow, that looks nice. Something about this gives me a sense of balance. Hmm. Like music is that, but yeah. with vibrations of air.
2: And what, what I think inspires these kinds of conversations and why it's quite, you know, you get quite excited when you can talk about these things is, is you can't quite explain it. That's my theory yeah. about music and art generally. It's fully abstract. Yeah. It's and, and there's abstract. times where you kind of start to put rules into it. Like, um, like, for example, if I went through my kind of Spotify of recent times, yeah. like, I've recently just rediscovered. The Guns N' Roses song "November Rain," which obviously oh, what a beautiful song! Obviously, yeah. isn't a song; it's like a ten-minute fucking
0: yeah.
1: epic piece of. Check music. out the oh. so. There's a solo piano version of that. Oh wow, and nice! And it's actually more beautiful than the original. Yeah,
0: but how? No, how it is? A, it is a song, but it's, it depends. But, that's but you know thing, what I mean? That. It's this incredible
1: piece of music. Oh, no, it's no not, but no, yeah, but
0: it's a good point yeah, because, like I said, music really is abstract, and I think sometimes the efficacy of it is reduced when we compartmentalize music as an art form into compartmentalised ideas like songs. So it's, Mm. like I said, it's a great piece of music. One of the problems or how music's, uh, its benefits have probably been curtailed somewhat is the fact that commercial interests, I've tried to put them down into like, uh, you know, three minutes and three and 30 seconds or now it's like two minutes and 40 seconds, whereby a song is only supposed to convey a very simple message without very much depth. Whereas, like I said, songs like November Rain, um, mm. the song um, Hazard by, I think, Mark, is it Howard Marks who did the song Hazard? Right, I have to tell about you the name. Because I have to get that right. Because um, <clears throat> it's the guy that wrote Time After Time.
2: Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I know who you're talking about, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, Richard Marks, that's Richard it. Richard Marks, yeah. yeah. Richard Marks wrote Hazard. Like, that song, again, or even like, I remember I came across the song uh, Frankie, by um, uh, Rod Stewart.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, Rod Stewart isn't the type of person I would typically be listening to, but when I heard the level of depth that's in that song, I was just blown away, man. It's, just, it's such an amazing song. Um, the, the
2: way mood takes you is fascinating, right? Like, I was listening to, I'm well into my soundtracks. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, I've got this, uh, there's this Hans Zimmer Live in Prague album. Yeah. And, and it's fucking intense. So he goes through like, everything from like Rain Man to Superman to Dark Knight to, to Interstellar and then finishes with Inception. And it's all live and it sounds amazing. And then just at some point, I can't explain why when I was listening to this earlier, I just really got in the mood for It's Tricky by Run DMC. <laughs> and it completely Something me Something about off. the melody
1: reminded you of that. But like the thing is too, like I find myself listening to a lot of soundtrack stuff when I'm writing. We'll say, Same here, yeah. So I listened to Hans Zimmer, Ryuichi, Ryuichi Sakamoto, I listen to nice. Morricone, mm. like Because just the soundscapes that they produce, they can la- allow me to feel emotion on a feeling level, but I'm not engaging with it really intellectually because there's no lyrics. Yeah, it's and a powerful what, thing. What I find really fascinating about music, and it's the one question I can never, ever answer, is you take something like November Rain, as you mentioned, Beautiful chord progression, mm. a beautiful melody from Axe Rose. But then you have these lyrics as well. Now, mm. if you read the lyrics of November Rain, Divide of Music as a piece of poetry, it won't impact you the way the song does. Mm. And then if you just listen to the music with no singing on it, that music won't impact you the way the entire piece does. And the beauty of songwriting is that it takes the lyrics of poetry. And then it takes music, vibrations of air, and the lyric and the melody meet somewhere in the middle to form this new emotional meaning. Like I love Bob Dylan, but mm. I, I I bought a lyrics book of Bob Dylan and read just his lyrics, and it doesn't hit. As yeah. poetry, it doesn't hit me in the heart the way it does when those lyrics are sung. Well, he's got a very melody.
2: famous album called Blood on the Tracks, which if you Oh,
1: one of my favorite albums. And that's the, that's literally
2: if someone says to me, Hey, uh, I've just broken up with someone. I'm like, there you go. Probably go and listen to Blood on the Tracks, mate, would be
1: my advice. That is you. a lot of people. And that's one of those things throughout the years. Like men, as we know, we, don't, we tend not to speak about mental health. We Absolutely. tend not to have a rich but, language around emotions. Yeah. Go and listen to Blood on the Tracks if you broke up with someone is one of the few little acceptable things that men say to other <laughs> men. But
2: I find yeah, I find hip hop has such an interesting place to play in in music now as well because it, it, hip hop offers this kind of unique um, bit of your brain. I think, Dane. You know what I mean? Like you, you kind of you're giving well, us a straight it's, passage it's, to a bit of your brain. It's
0: quite yeah, it's quite minimalist, but it, it really hip hop is probably exemplifies uh, what Blind Boy is saying about the fact that you can have uh, lyrics or poetry that exists mm-hmm. solely and it can stir emotion, but not be as provocative. But when it is. Uh, provided with a soundscape alongside it, then it can resonate in ways that people wouldn't imagine. And if you think about hip-hop's real origins, it would have been from people like The Last Poets and like people like Scott Heron, who would talk about like E Pluberis Unum. And, you know, having the drums alongside with that, building to a crescendo, makes that so much more um, a more poignant piece of poetry and social commentary as opposed to just being a song. Mm. Um, So by that token... How I think you're right in terms of how hip hop is important, like hip hop's cultural significance and its original soundscape was in is infinitely important. I think for me in terms of identity and as well as being a tool of rationalizing my existence, because, you know, through normal uh, conventional means of trying to look back in history and contributions to art and literature, I'd be uh, pressed to find a fair representation of the contribution of Black artists toward mm-hmm. music and literature. But when you listen to something like hip-hop, when you combine the samples plus the voices and references, mm. then <clears throat> you're able to enjoy that on a number of levels whereby, you know, it's contemporary music that has lent from previous uh, artists who may have not been recognised at the time mm-hmm. you know, for their work who, um, which are now not only provides me with the opportunity to enjoy and project and to identify with the themes in that song, but it also gives me a certain period of time travel whereby I can tell you for free, like, I would have been somewhat versed, but I wouldn't have known about the works of James Brown mm-hmm. or Rick James or, um, you know, just numbers of do what musicians and people like Frankie Lyman were it not for uh, hip-hop, so... You know, that's what it means to me is that it's, it almost allows me to link with a collective consciousness uh, of people who would have had very similar experiences to me. And even though the uh, aesthetic and soundscape around the time that they would have been at the same age as me wasn't the same, I can definitely identify with all of the same periods and stuff like that as well. It's it's an
2: uh, amazing way of looking at
0: it. Yeah, I think I think hip-hop has been very useful in that respect. I think in where you know and we can both relate to this blind boy where you know imperialism has tried to reduce and ridicule yeah small colloquials, turn of phrases and idiomatic expressions within our communities then these are then we get re empowered again because of things like hip-hop that always exist. i think hip-hop for example has been the tool of the powerless for them to strike back out against
1: yeah the
2: characters from. do you agree um, with that uh
0: blind boy
1: yes and like i i grew up listening to hip-hop as as, as a fucking child in Ireland and hip hop's very popular in Ireland because like, so we have in Ireland what's called Irish rebel tunes and mm. these are songs of Irish resistance which are our, our music, our traditional folk music and the themes and lyrics of our traditional folk music it's near identical to hip hop. It's, it's mm. very similar. Our, like, so we have a famous song called uh, so th- there were, there were British Army soldiers in Ireland around the 1920s. They were very, very brutal. They would have been the equivalent of the SS. They, they. I mean,
0: a lot of, the, a lot of those paramilitary uh, uh, loyalist paramilitary actually have lots of links to white supremacist groups, as we all. Oh know. yeah, so, man, you trace that yeah, shit. Yeah. That's listen, I, I would I say this, blind boy, like with the uh, reduction of the troubles, rather than say the end of troubles, with all of these decommissioned firearms and guns that all these paramilitary Northern Irish groups would sort have of had. Where do people think they went?
1: Well, a lot of them went onto the streets. Exactly around 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 the late nineties.
0: Exactly. Operation like, Trident, around the same time that we were black people also being stigmatised for being responsible for the influx of firearms into uh, urban and working class communities. When really they had to get them from somewhere because no they one had makes to guns get them. In yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. And um, but the, the when I was growing up listening to hip hop, a song like "Fuck the Police" by N.W.A. Mm. When I heard that, like that sounds like Irish traditional folk music, <laughs> but we, we had the equivalent of so that, like I said, but, uh, in the nineteen twenties, there was a British soldiers in Ireland, and they were known they were known as the Black and Tans because their uniform was they had black uh, pants and tan tops, and these were particularly violent. British soldiers who were brought in by Winston Churchill specifically to attack the civilian population. We view them as terrorists in Ireland. And there's an Irish traditional song called Come Out You Black and Tans, Come Out and Fight Me Like a Man. And this is basically Fuck the Police. (laughs) It's the exact same thing. So when I was listening to like NWA, I was going, this is the same. This is just... Irish traditional music but told from a completely different perspective but what aligns the two things is the anti-colonialism it's Mm -hmm. speaking to power Mm -hmm. and then also what hip-hop did for me was like nowadays when you think of we'll say the Black Lives Matter movement and we're confronted with the visual spectacle of people having camera phones and recording police brutality so now it's there on our screens to see this wasn't really the case when I was a kid growing up you might get a little snippet of Rodney King on TV. That was it. I'm
0: trying to, yeah, I'm trying to think of other examples of yeah. violence that made the name mainstream. Rodney riot. King. It was only Some, Rodney King and it was only because there was a camera there. Yeah,
1: there was a camera there. But I was listening to Ice-T. I was listening to Ice Cube. So it didn't matter what Ooh. the news wants to tell me about Rodney King. It didn't matter that the news had a narrative of trying to suggest that Rodney King was, was a criminal or suggesting that the police were right to beat him. Because I'm listening to Ice T, I'm listening to Ice Cube, mm-hmm. who are speaking about it from what they're seeing in their communities. I'm listening to public enemy. So that allowed me an alternative narrative that went past what the media was saying. So I'm going, hold on a second, this police brutality is real and it's way bigger than I'm seeing as a little kid on TV. Absolutely. Ice T is telling the truth, and so is Chuck D. And so yeah, is well,
0: I- and I'm glad you said that because that that would be one of the ways I could most successfully answer is like. Chuck Lee said, "Is that hip hop is uh, Black America's CNN?" Yeah, and, yeah, and that's a really good reference point there as well, man. So that's that's what music music means. I, I, it's it's the language of humanity. I think it's the way it's the only real true way we can honestly chronicle our experience as human beings in a way that is uh, perceivable to other humans. Like we can write history books, but they're they're always gonna have the bias of the victors in skirmishes and battles. But I think music, um, even particularly because Like when we talk about vibrations and vibes, like in reggae Mm -hmm. music, for example, that pertains directly to like the vibration of Mm -hmm. molecules and cells, and like listening to music at five hundred and twenty-eight megahertz, like they're all these things that vibrate. And you know, low frequency, high vibration music Mm -hmm. is a part of the human spiritual development, as opposed Mm -hmm. to high frequency and low Mm -hmm. vibration sounds like sirens and klaxons and alerts, which actually lower human vibrations. So for me, music means anything. Everything I think music is. It's almost like the uh, what's the word like a metronome for for the way our cells vibrate. Yeah, it's, uh, metronome the for the soul. Yeah, metronome for the soul. I'd say.
1: And it's interesting what you're saying there, Dan, as well, because we in Western society we, we don't we tend not to credit credit music with that depth. Mm. In Western society, we tend to just think of music as entertainment. Mm. Yeah. But if you look at certain in, indigenous communities, like a lot of indigenous communities in, in South America that use. Um, like ayahuasca mm. so they will use ayahuasca as we, we, again we'd call it a psychedelic drug it's not it's a, it's a spiritual experience but if you look at how the ayahuasca is consumed in the West we would think oh it's this thing you drink and you get fucked up and it's like mm-hmm. no 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 in South America it's a thing that's drank There's a day-long ritual around it and very importantly is the music that's being played while the person Mm. consumes the ayahuasca. So they have a relationship between the rhythms, the melodies, the vibrations, and then also how this relates to the spiritual experience of taking this ayahuasca. And we in the West, we don't get that. We yes. want to medicalize it. We want to figure out how do you get ayahuasca and put it into a pill.
0: Yeah, that's, and that's the only thing with the West is that it's uh, we, we take this phenomenon like arts and culture and every time it passes through the mill of commodification or capitalist commodification, yeah. then its, its significance is always reduced. In the same way that, like, you know, Religion, uh, historically being a factor of people being able to, uh, I guess, rationalize their own personal relationship with their own spirituality or understanding that there is more to the corporeal uh, and our yeah. consciousness and working out how that links to, you know, other metaphysical phenomena is what religion, how it's supposed to work or our way of um, understanding or appreciating the fact that we know there's more to ourselves than just ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously that being run through the uh you know, the middle of capitalism and commodification means that now you have these compartmentalized ideas yes. that revolve around institutionalized religion and yeah. this idea that for and and then by the same token of being capitalistic, it's this zero sum game where it's like, well, because we follow this doctrine, we're right, and thus anyone who doesn't must be wrong. Yeah. Which is not how it should work. Like if any every if every religion's uh is characterized by the fact that they believe in an omniscient, omnipotent being, then why would you even have to vocalize your disagreement with other religions? Because you would know the omniscient creator of your own yeah. belief system will 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 understand what's going to happen in the long run. Anyway, they, they, they there there will be a plan, yeah. and 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 yeah, and they would and, and also would understand the thoughts and minds and souls of you know people that don't follow the same doctrine as you. And there mm-hmm. should be a plan that's greater than that. In the same way that like. Why would you ever worry about the manner in which anyone's born, so far as a point of sexual orientation or beliefs? Because yeah. you know they're all going to return to the Creator, who would have had a divine design in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
2: What an amazing question! I'm, I'm not sure we can even end it there. We, we can we can keep going, but like we, we, the format of the show dictates, we move on to another <laughs> question. <laughs> okay, but with that is li- listeners. What what a great, great such so a so simple great. question, right? Amazing, like, so simple a question, and yet it generated. Uh, and And multitude of of thoughts there uh, and um, a great show well it
0: predates human speech when you think about it, right? People would have played drums to communicate yeah. and uh, you know slap fires and stuff like that as well. so
2: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. My question this week is going to sidestep Go on. the music. And it, and it, and it's kind of to both of you guys, but uh, Blind Boy, you, you know, I've listened to your show, listened to your podcast, really enjoy it. I enjoyed one episode particularly because uh, it featured a guest that I don't think is very easy to find as a guest. Uh, and so my simple yeah. question to you is this, how important is is adam curtis the documentary filmmaker we've brought him up a couple of times on this show mm-hmm. he hasn't come on this show yet because he's a he's a fucker to get hold of uh but that's but, yet
0: howard and we know he's doing great works he's so. doing great works we're we're go right
2: but you know like I, I think he's a very interesting character he definitely fucks a lot of people off uh some yeah. people absolutely love him you spent some time with him blind boy yeah uh, and i know dane has plenty of thoughts about him. how important
1: is adam curtis well, to me personally, like, so, like, uh, I, I used to do. So, I used to have a, a musical act called the Rubber Bandits, mm. and we used to do like comedy music. We do the odd gig in London, and, and Adam Curtis became like a fan, and he used to come to some of our gigs. Oh man,
0: I know, that's amazing, <laughs> I know. Oh, my. Oh, fuck me, <laughs> he used to come to Soho Theatre. So I cool. didn't know
1: who he was. Yeah, that's I didn't so know cool. who he was. And I, I was having pints with him, and I was just like, "Oh, it's this lovely, friendly English lad called Adam." And then my producer at the time says, "You need to check out his documentaries. He's not just some friendly English lad." And then I looked at Adam Curtis's documentaries, and it changed. It it just changed how I thought about documentaries. It changed about how I thought about making content. My own podcast is is very much indebted to being a fan of Adam Curtis's work. What Adam Curtis does is. He brings the thinking of a writer and an artist to journalism and documentary. Mm-hmm. He uses storytelling. He, I won't say he embellishes the truth. He doesn't embellish the truth, but he does construct uh, a narrative that follows the the beats of fiction.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, yeah.
1: Create a documentary that, you, that impacts you so much more than a straight, cold documentary. Adam Curtis has a way of making a documentary that hits you in the heart the way that a piece of art does. He, 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 right
0: he, he, he almost presents truth in a way with the, same, it's with the same elaborate meticulousness that you would produce the lies and fiction and the pageantry you see in fiction, like you said, all the time. It's like, yeah. instead of being like, here's the hard facts followed by statistics and graphical or statistical representation, it's... He talks in all the elements of just the inception of a, of of a, of a of a topic or a theme that he's discussing, and right from the beginning of it, how how it forms. It's but just...
2: you're, it's a really good observation, then, because the thing about it to me, when I watch his work, is I feel he is like you know, there's this spectrum, and you know, at one point, the the, the two ends of the spectrum meet each other. So I yeah. think actually. You know, when I look at I saw the front page of The Sun the other day when I was walking past the shop and I saw that they were they were complaining about the fact that the the Brit Awards are no longer going to have gender based awards. It's going to be just uh, artists. And the front page was like, look what they've done now, the fucking lunatics. Uh, And and, and I was like, that's just crazy. And I was thinking, "God, God, but for the agenda that they set, it's totally logical. Like it's totally logical, and so at some point,
0: I mean, if we're we're, we're very honest with ourselves as human beings, it's massively overdue. And really, yeah, the discussion about even even separating uh, artistic achievement along the lines of gender, really and truly, considering creativity has its origins in the feminine hemisphere of the brain.
2: (laughs) There's no argument for me about it. It's more that I just thought the sun was like I was looking at going, yeah. That sounds about right for the sun. So I kind of think when I could look reflect Adam Adam Curtis's work, you know, Adam Curtis could kind of go into like I don't know the rise of Oasis and and pull yeah. out strands of it that fit the narrative of his mm-hmm. perspective on the world which which I w- I would say I kind of I concur with elements of what he comes up with obviously as you say he's kind of presenting a version of history isn't it yeah. that that isn't isn't everything because he couldn't possibly do that right Blind boy it's like
1: but wow. also what 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 so I was never very good at school I didn't fit very well into the system of school and how Things like history, mathematics, how how academic things were taught,
0: and how me. and how compartmentalized, as if they're all separate, yeah. separate, uh, separate doctrines. It's like separating maths and science by chemistry and biology and physics. It's like how can you separate these two things?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I was made to feel kind of dumb because I failed in school. And what Adam Curtis's work did is, he would take subjects that. I had been led to believe this is for smart people. But now all of a sudden I'm understanding it because Adam Curtis is speaking in a language that I understand and that's the language of art and creativity. Mm -hmm. So now subjects that I felt were inaccessible to me because the school system said this is for smart people and you're a failure. Now I'm understanding and engaging with things I didn't feel that I had permission to engage with because Adam Curtis is just telling it in an interesting way. And it always reminded me of no matter how shittily I got on in school, there was always one good teacher. And this teacher had a passion for the subject they were speaking about and and had a way to communicate the academic doctrine using storytelling so that everybody understood the subject that was being spoken about. And then other teachers didn't, they just went by the book. And if you didn't catch up, you were stupid. And Adam Curtis made things accessible to me that I was led to believe were not for me because I was stupid.
2: Yeah, that's, a, that's such an interesting way of looking at it. And I think what he kind of does as well is is is, is by p- putting the art first, right? That's the kind of thing. Is like when yeah. you watch the history of documentaries, putting the art first often doesn't generate a huge following. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen um, film film, um, Pervert's Guide to Ideology.
1: Yeah, uh, by Slabag's
2: Litek. Yeah, which You can't the, pronounce his name, but yeah. He did a pretty good job there. But, the, <laughs> but you know, that guy's work, I'd recommend listeners if you like Adam Curtis or you go and it's check amazing, Adam Curtis, yeah. you go and check that guy. But I, I, maybe you'd agree with me, Blind Boy. Probably a, a tougher, uh, it's quite a tough one. A, a lot tougher.
1: Yeah. He does a brilliant analysis of the film They Live by, yeah. uh, what's his name? John, John oh, Watts? John, Car- John
0: Carpenter. Yeah. John Carpenter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah.
1: Like so, so Slavov Zizek. That's a great film.
0: That's it. That's it's, it's an
1: amazing film. But yeah, yeah. Zizek in this uh, documentary, "The Pervert's Guide to Ideology," he takes this John Carpenter film and says, "This isn't just an entertaining film. This is how it exactly deconstructs the messages behind capitalism." Mm. And he does it brilliantly. And that then led to me to have a deeper understanding of the work of John Carpenter.
2: I feel like the the the, the Zizek's uh, work is like almost like kind of. Uh, a velvet underground spin off band that someone, whereas, like, for me, Adam <laughs> yeah. Adam, Adam Curtis is like radio, yeah. Radiohead, like the biggest version of the thing that could ever be yeah. created. And, and listen, man, you're in that history now. Like, what you did in Undestroys the World, I know you you had, you know, you weren't 100% uh, completely
1: happy with the final product. I know you had some. <laughs> I know, I was happy with it. It's just that w- w- when, so the B- Blind Boy Undestroys the World was. It's a series of documentaries I made about capitalism, about the world today. Like it was BBC. I loved making it. It Mm. was such a wonderful opportunity. But when you make, like, here's the other thing about Adam Curtis. Adam Curtis is a rare artist, very rare, Mm. in that when he wants to make something for the BBC, they just say to him, go do it. We're going to stay out of it. And Curtis says you better fucking stay out of it. I'm making what I want to make. And he comes back with a fucking three hour or a seven hour documentary that goes on the player. So he has quite a lot of freedom that other documentary makers don't make. And he's aware of this and he spoke about it on, on my podcast. But yeah, I made these documentaries for the BBC. I think they're great, by the way. I think thank you very great. much. Really and good, I was very really happy good. with him. But at the same time, and this isn't necessarily a critique, but when you go to the BBC, they're investing money in this documentary and they expect a return mm-hmm. and they expect, you you have to compromise creatively at points so that you can make a product for a TV channel that can market it. So that's like, in my own podcast, that's completely free. I can do an entire hour yeah. about a potato if I want and no one's there to tell me, can you bring Brian McFadden in and make it like mm-hmm. a yeah. dancing <laughs> program? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Curtis represents a freedom as well that doesn't really exist anymore. He'd be like the Beatles in 1967 yeah. where the Beatles are like, we're not doing gigs anymore and we're just going to make a weird album. <laughs> or Frank Zappa or Funkadelic. We're going to do something really crazy and weird and people are going to buy it. Uh, Adam Curtis is the last of that. Oh man, he, he, you've, now, you've hit the nail on the head there because it's making TV
2: as all three of us will testify is, is a Difficult. complicated team game. But at the
0: same time, I genuinely, the way I see Adam Curtis is that one day when our civilization is over, when alien archaeologists try to work out how the fuck we fucked up, they'll look yeah. at an Adam Curtis' documentary. Mm-hmm. He's, mm-hmm. He's, he's almost like, you know, I just think in the same way that, like, the aesthetic of modern life is almost satirized and subverted by, uh, you know, people like Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. I think Adam Curtis kind of applies that kind of same sensibility as you yeah. said, the creativity of the shows and almost makes everything appear quite kitchen twee from a distance. And then you're almost kind of like watch him pan around the earth or zoom in. And then mm-hmm. it's almost like lifting a rock to see the uh, insects beneath the structures that mm-hmm. we are uh, kind yeah. of base our reality and our, and, our
2: and the thing like you occasionally on. hear Dane is people go like, Oh yeah, but he's left loads out and he's like, well, how do you think he's supposed to fit it all fucking in? Like, how's he ever going to fit everything that is right and wrong with the,
1: the world? That's the thing too, Howard. I What I love about Adam Curtis's, Curtis's work is who he pisses off and why. <laughs> yeah. And who he tends to piss off are people who want to gatekeep what they see as intelligent stuff. Mm. People who are like, you can't present this as entertainment. This is real serious academic shit. Mm. This is stuff that must exist in journals. This is stuff that people with PhDs and master's degrees speak about to other academics. And they get really annoyed that Adam Curtis introduces
0: the compartmentalization of knowledge. And that's the difference. There you go, exactly. The difference between intellectuals and academics is that these academics. Pride themselves and even to the point of deriving self esteem from being able to have a particular proficiency in one small element or compartmentalized element and to exclude. of knowledge and to exclude others. Yeah, and that's how they derive their self esteem, which is why you have like, you is know, historians way- like David Starkey who may yeah. focus on in a mm-hmm. particular aspect of british imperialist history and celebrate this and by that same token he's able to politically identify with that narrative because it also benefits him and it's just partially, partially yes. half of the story
2: isn't Whereas, that why um, curing cancer is becoming ever increasingly slower because uh well not curing helping cancer uh, because um the different cancer charities don't share their information
1: yeah that's a big problem and if it, like if you trace that what we're speaking about there, I did a podcast on it recently. You, you can trace it to the fucking Victorians, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, so during the Victorian period, do you know ferns, those plants, ferns, mm-hmm. yeah. they became really popular in the Victorian period. i tell you why it happened around 1830. When the uh, the industrial revolution led to cities like Bristol and London and Manchester, these huge industrial cities, pollution was so fucking bad in these cities that the new middle class who lived in townhouses, they couldn't grow houseplants. There was so much coal in the air, they couldn't grow fucking houseplants. Wow. But this person figured out, oh shit, if I get a little fern and put it in a jar, I can actually grow it in my house. So it led to what was called the Victorian fern craze, where people began to fetishize ferns but it became a very female activity. So women in the Victorian period in England who would have been, they wouldn't have been allowed out without chaperones. This was a very, very misogynistic society. All of a sudden, women were allowed going to the woods to collect ferns and it created a space for women to be able to be with each other without, under, without the gaze hmm. of men. It allowed, there was a lot of uh, lesbians involved in this. Women were able to express sexuality that was outside of, what was deemed to be succe- uh, acceptable in Victorian society. Mm. And then all of a sudden, women started to discover new ferns. They started to name new ferns. They started to create the science of botany. Wow. But then what happens around 1870s, some men didn't like this. And then they create, <laughs> they gave botany a name. And they said, this is now a serious science for men and men only and women aren't allowed in. And this is called botany and it's really, really important. And all this work that women did in collecting and, uh, the taxonomy of ferns was just fucking ignored. And wow. now it became a men only science. And you see that across the board with multiple sciences and how it became academia, it turned into academia and then in the service of capitalism and the boundaries that that denotes
2: yeah what uh what an amazing story what, what there you go what an amazing answer to these, these two <laughs> these two questions so far Going kind to of blow my mind the amount we've managed to fit in this dialogue right i now. know i
1: feel sorry for your fucking howard because you're the one who has to
2: Maybe, time these uh, questions this is all sure good it, it, it's, it, it, we've na- honestly we've nailed it and i'm gonna hand it over to uh the the brilliant dane baptiste to complete the trio of questions from today uh, we've had music and adam curtis what you got up your sleeve dane
0: um, I want to keep it relatively, uh, e- I hope it's relatively easy. Well, um, just I took the time to re-watch the uh, Blind Boy and Destroys the World documentary, which I did mm-hmm. love. And, uh, Thank you. I, I say that with, within the context of, of being aware of the inhibitions that would have been projected onto you by <clears throat> terrestrial TV channels. Mm-hmm. But um, obviously, I, I would like to think that I ha- can and will show solidarity with your work and... How progressive it is and humanitarian it is um on another level as well, and I think what tends to happen is that within our industry, sometimes people might be reluctant to show solidarity with the themes you 're discussing because mm-hmm. of whatever short term benefit they may be enjoying based on their mm-hmm. status in the industry that 's not a condemnation, just an observation yeah um but I want to ask blind boy really that uh do you obviously having being part of the rubber bandits and using shopping bags as masks, do you mm-hmm. find that uh work you're doing to be progressive ideologically and also to empower people without voices, uh, people who are suffering, and just to do your humanitarian work in general, do you think that's easy to do with a alter ego or an anonymous identity? Great question.
1: So so I wear a plastic bag in my head mm-hmm. and I go by the name of Blind Boy, which obviously isn't my real name. Uh, it's, a, it's a pen name. There's a couple of reasons I do this. Uh, number one is to protect my mental health. Mm. I, I'm an artist. I yeah. love writing. I love making documentaries. I love making podcasts. I fucking love this. This gives me a sense of meaning. But I don't necessarily like being recognized or being having any notoriety. My personality doesn't suit that. I have a history of agoraphobia, social anxiety, depression, panic attacks, which I manage really, really well. Mm. And I live my life free of these things. But I think if I was going into fucking Aldi or Lidl, and people are recognizing me, I don't know what I have the personality that would be able to maintain my mental health under that. Mm-hmm. I think I my, my head might go up my arse very quickly and I might become quite arrogant and... Um, the pressure of being recognized is a loss. Mm. Like, Dan, you'll know this, man. People fucking, people who you don't know will know who you are and go, "Dan, what's up? I love what you're doing. Yeah, where, someone... and, where,
0: and where I've grown up, it's like, I, I'd say a few times I've been quite paranoid or even may have appeared to be confrontational. So I'm like, why is someone staring at me? And they're like, oh, I love, <laughs> I love you here. And you're like, oh, okay. There you go. So, yeah, so I definitely relate to that. And, and even... I probably felt myself developing some agoraphobia just before before lockdown. Yeah, it really is, especially if you're not used to it. And, you know, it's not something you, like I said, as an artist, your your goal, I mean, my goal was to be able to do something I love and be able to just do that for a living and be able to have concepts become tangible phenomena in my life that's like my goal as an artist is to chronicle my humanity or my human experience in a way that's perceivable to other people i didn't necessarily factor in what comes with that notoriety or that increasing profile and so not i am aware that it's it can be part and parcel but like you said it can be for your social anxiety for agoraphobia people you don't know approaching you
1: can be really uh yeah nerve-wracking it's nerve-wracking but i as well Then i guarantee you that you know people in the industry and their personalities are quite well suited to this. Yes, like definitely. I know lots of people and it's like, yeah. they fucking love getting recognized and this is who they are. And for them, brilliant, the job is perfect. Mm. For me, I just want to make fucking art and I don't want to be recognized as such. I want, to, I want to go, this is my work life, this is my private life. So this works really well for me, even though I'm not particularly anonymous, like people can go online, they can find my real name, Like I pay taxes, but the thing is people engage with the spectacle. It's like if, like I love The Simpsons, but when I see one of the actors of The Simpsons doing the voice, I'm not getting that starstruck feeling as if it was actually Bart Simpson. Something is off. So people engage with the spectacle. So um, the other thing too, in my podcast, at least once once a month, I do a mental health podcast where like I used to study psychology, but before I became an entertainer, I was going to become a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. And I studied psychotherapy for like three years. I didn't get my qualification, but I did years of counseling. I did years of learning about psychology. So I speak about mental health, not only from a from a personal perspective, but how I apply psychology to help myself. And I get to be very honest when I do this. A huge part of speaking about Speaking about your own emotions and speaking about mental health, you have to show people that you're comfortable being vulnerable. This means being okay with saying things like, sometimes I'm insecure. Sometimes I'm jealous of other people. Sometimes I feel weak. Sometimes I don't feel strong. To be this vulnerable, I'm able to do this on the space of my podcast. Mm -hmm. But if I didn't have that fucking bag on my head, I don't like when you when you open up like that and other people relate to it, they can, it can open up something in them. And I don't think I'd have the emotional space for someone coming up to me in a pub and saying that thing you said on your podcast about mental health made me think about my own life. And then I have someone sharing with me because this is, I have uh, pals who work in the entertainment industry and they speak about mental health. And one of the issues is, when you live in a country like Ireland that doesn't have adequate mental health services, Mm -hmm. when someone in the public eye speaks about depression, speaks about suicide, speaks about self-harm, people will come up to you in public and they will disclose. And when someone does that, you need to be fully emotionally present for that person. Well, and who's
2: to say that that person should in any way be qualified to be in that
1: conversation, you know? But if you're in a fucking pub and you're on your fourth pint and three people come (laughs) up to you to speak about their depression you might end up saying something harmful. You might end up, someone might come up and say, I need to speak to you about your depression. I saw what you said on television. And you don't have the time or the emotional space at that yeah. moment and you're turning them away. Because I have a plastic bag in my head, that's not part of my life. Yeah. So I can share and I can speak about mental health as much as possible while maintaining my own emotional boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that really, really helps me.
2: Yeah. I think it's an amazing service that you do in, with that, that monthly episode. And I think you're by doing that, you're doing your... Bit, you know, that's, that's, you know, that, that's. that's
1: the shit that helps me sleep at night. Yeah. Because yeah. sometimes it's like, you know, you, you kind of go, what the fuck am I doing? I'm making a few people laugh. What am I fucking doing? Hmm. But then when I think, okay, I'm sharing some of my own vulnerability and my mental health journey, and then this might help other people, then that just gives me a sense of purpose and meaning that helps me to sleep at night, if you get me.
0: No, well, well, no, definitely. I think, I think for most artists, that is part of the endeavor. It's, it's, you know, mm-hmm. almost leading by example by, being able to chronicle and articulate your struggles, um, I think everyone needs. Uh, I think everyone benefits from that, and it goes back to the initial question about what music means to you. Is it means that much? It means that somebody is committing a part of their psyche to something tangible that initially comes from longitudinal waves because it's compression of air. But what mm-hmm. happens is in the world we live in is that now, because of technology we can now record said narrative and that becomes transverse waves. And as you know, those, even though they may weaken or dissipate, they never, uh, they never, um, they don't disappear from existence, like it's energy. So transverse waves never disappear. So it means if you commit something, a piece of art or a song is committed to wax and it's played and broadcast, Mm -hmm. that continues to beam into space. So, however, yeah. uh, the universe continues to expand however it changes, however a million years we are away from our evolution and Homo sapien becomes a memory in terms of the journey of our uh, uh, of the carbon-based life forms that occupy this planet. there is a tangible record of their existence that is still out there and mm. that means that <laughs> you, you you know that's we, when we talk about you know when we talk about religious institutions as we did before, well, one of the things I think most human beings through their recognition of the metaphysical and something being more to them than just their physical bodies, whether it's a consciousness or a soul. <clears throat> well, until the, the evidence is conclusive, creativity and art is the only way we have to kind of, outside of procreating, a way of ensuring our immortality or that we will create something that will outlive our physical selves. Yeah.
2: And I think when you say that, man, yeah. like it makes me think about how... um there's been this thing, let's say, let's call it for the last decade, it's mm-hmm. less potentially, but where people are going, oh, we're in this mental health crisis, and, you know, kind of, oh, we're we all becoming more aware about our mental health. And, and to me, I, I don't, I, I'm not being dismissive in any way, I think there's always been a mental health crisis. Yeah. I think, that, I think yeah. that everyone has a. No, no, has not even a, not has the, a not
0: the crisis, um, Howard. It's just, it's just, it's yeah, just. I, Mental everyone has stuff. a
2: mental health, yeah,
0: health, everyone, health everyone problem. Has a, everyone has a complex, and your complex yeah. should have always taken the same level of prescience as your physical being. And like why we, didn't why like, didn't it? Like, exactly. We could always identify physical defects, we could identify whether it's disability or even if it's like any kind of uh uh shortcoming due to whether it's substance, and not say substance abuse or like misuse of substances, no, but if, someone, if someone's malnourished or if someone's dehydrated, then mm-hmm. uh, We've always been able to identify and th- diagnose and treat that accordingly. The psychological equivalent of dehydration or the psychological equivalent of malnutrition isn't something we, again, outside of uh, clandestine in the elite circles mm. of psychologists or psychiatrists. It's like you got that friend. Identify, if you got, if you got we, that
2: friend that I mean, you reckon like 10, 20 years ago, you would have looked at their issues they have and gone oh,
1: he just needs to fucking sort himself out and stop drinking.
2: Do you know what I mean? Or Or we
1: used to use phrases like, I don't know if this existed in in Britain, but in Ireland, uh, we used to say the words like nervous breakdown or that person's nerves are at them. Now, we don't say that anymore. The word nervous breakdown means nothing. It was a Mm. catch-all term for several different, now we have more language. Mm. Now, depression, anxiety, ADHD, this person is neurodivergent. We have a much greater language, Mm. but by expressing this language and it opens up parts of ourselves and now people are going I have a language for how I feel now and I need help but the infrastructure hasn't caught up
2: no, well, it's the same as racism. It's like racism oh. being this thing that we've suddenly gone. Well, they're both, they're both, they're both linked. I think yeah, yeah. if
0: we were to, because if we were to really assess the psychological disposition of most racists or people that held, mm-hmm. well, racists and people that held, hold prejudice views are two yeah. separate things. How first of all, yeah. because I would argue there may be many people that are racist in terms of the fact that they have created, perpetuate, and empower uh, systems or infrastructures which oppress minority groups. But they may not do that because they don't like black people. I, I would I would argue that some racists, for example, like, for example, the racists that have funded, uh, you know, cyber attacks and divisions online between people on social media, mm-hmm. may, don't necessarily do that because they hate black or brown people. They do that because they like... If people continue to argue amongst themselves, they'll forget that in 2008 we destroyed their entire economy and through austerity mm-hmm. measures we're going to bring them back to the dark ages in terms of the inequality of um, resource allocation. But... They don't necessarily hate black people, but they realise that if people realise that black people are humans, then they will realise that the exploitation of resources in somewhere like the Congo for coltan for uh, technology yeah. um, will mean a massive loss in profits for them. Yeah. So so, so it's just in the same way that like I don't think that people in power in the US government necessarily hate Muslims. It's just that let's find a generic way of grouping the people from the region of what we define as the Middle East in order to dehumanise them to facilitate our exploitation of oil reserves. It's mm-hmm. just all the Muslims, knowing forward that there's Zoroastrians and there's over 100,000 Christians in the same region of Iraq that mm-hmm. we're attacking. But it's just a way of generalizing and appealing to people. And the correct way of, and what they're actually using is the manipulation of mental health people by feeding into their fear or people's feelings yeah. of inadequacy. Yeah. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. all about race. So even, I've said it before in a podcast before, I think the whole thing with mental health and is more about, we don't have the psychological equivalent of gyms. Gyms have now become commercialized,
2: (laughs) That they're always available
0: to people if they need to uh, address any physical defaults or physical uh, inadequacies they may have or deficiencies they may perceive. But what we don't have is the psychological equivalent of that, where you can walk in and be like, I just need an hour of therapy or I need an hour of cognitive Mm -hmm. therapy to speak to somebody. I just need an hour with, um, you know, I just need an hour to kind of like describe my anxiety I need an hour so I can just have a a moment of explosive anger um, in order for me to rationalise some trauma I suffered when I was younger or I need a space where you know like in gyms they have like spin class and they have young I I need a space where I can recreate a Example of trauma, so, but it changes. So I'm in control of the situation in order for me to rationalize the trauma that I suffered as a child. Because you know that happens with a lot of people sexually. Like people talk about mm-hmm. like, fetish and people talk about a kink. But a lot of the time, sometimes people experience sexual trauma and try to recreate that same paradigm where they're in control so they can process their trauma a lot better. It's mm-hmm. like and, and and you know Howard, it's like even if we talk about. Because that in itself will link to discussions about, you know, gender dysmorphia that arises from sexual trauma. And then that in turn would lead to a longer discussion about us having a better understanding of the complex behind gender reassignment, rather than trying to have some kind of unified theory as to why people may change their gender. So I think, yeah, um, I understand where you're coming from, Blind Boy, because that's a lot to do. And sometimes when you're able to just provide In a way, like a a straw man in the form of blind boy, that's something that people are able to project onto and you still get to be your own individual while you continue to have that journey of dynamically processing your own human complex.
1: Just to make a point on what you said there about, you know, we don't have these the equivalent of gyms for mental health. And to take it back to, there's an Adam Curtis documentary called Century of the Self.
2: Yeah. Mm.
1: And it could be argued that in our current model of capitalist society, we don't have, capitalism can't exist when a population has emotional literacy and is mentally healthy. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Adam Curtis episode, Century of the Self, where he went into how the, the modern consumerism was invented by Sigmund Freud's nephew, Edward Ed Bernays. Bernays.
0: Yep, yep. Yeah. All so in the 1920s,
1: well. Edward Bernays looked at his his uncle's, Sigmund Freud's book and said, Oh, this unconscious business. I bet you I can use this to sell people shit they don't need. (laughs) So, In our society today, when you buy soap, for instance, right now, soap all soap does is that it gets you clean and it might make you smell nicer. That's all soap does. Mm. But if you look at how soap is advertised, they're not selling you something that gets you clean and makes you smell nice. They're selling you a better version of yourself. So all products today, when we consume, we're not buying what we need we're trying to purchase a better version of ourselves, and a person who has emotional literacy and is who is comfortable with who they are and is happy. They're not going to think that soap is going to make them a better person. So we, capitalism exists uh, only within a society that is traumatized and mentally damaged. And only then can we continually sell people things they don't need.
2: Yeah, To suggest that we have covered a lot of ground in today's episode, Dane, what, what, mate, that's that's like a it's like a killer episode. That's an amazing episode. It I is, love but I, I,
0: I'd, say, I'd say as well, first of all, Blind Boy, thank you so much, bro. I really appreciate it. But, and thanks for having me, Liz. But, but Howard, you know what? For me, it's I don't find it particularly, it's not like a, 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 a difficult intellectual endeavour because when mm. you're speaking to somebody who's accepted the truth within themselves, like uh, Blind Boy said, it's having the awareness to refer back to oneself and be like, I've experienced bouts of inadequacy. I experienced bouts of jealousy. I experienced mm. bouts of um, vulnerability opening your mind up to those truths means that any other stream of consciousness or exchange with other people can happen so much easier because you yeah. haven't created mm-hmm. these psychological walls out of fear that these, these dark recesses of your mind will be discovered yeah. by somebody else.
1: Yeah. You're not defensive. Yeah,
0: you're not defensive. You're, you're. I've looked at my
1: own. I've looked at the pain within me. Mm. I've stared at it. I'm comfortable with it. Therefore, I can share it and speak about it because I'm not hiding from it.
0: Yeah, exactly. when you're
1: hiding from your insecurity, hiding from your... the the things in yourself that you don't like you tend to defend them and you defend them by pushing people away
0: Precisely Um, and I've been told I'm self-critical sometimes but it is actually just a pathological practice of maybe examining the most extreme Uh, extreme aspects of negative self-image I may have for one of two reasons I think it's a really good way of teaching myself uh, self-discipline through empathy and being Mm -hmm. like you know how this shit makes you feel so be mindful of flippant comments you may make that make other people Mm -hmm. feel this way as well Um, and also it's kind of like you know by understanding that this is within me, it's almost like by the merit of it being within yourself, then other people must feel this way as well. And so, mm-hmm. even on from a negative perspective, there's going to be this mutuality with other human beings. So, <laughs> no, I, I totally dig it, man, and I respect it, man. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and
1: uh, yeah imparting that stream of consciousness on us, man. It's going to have to be a
2: part two thank next year.
1: Have to be a part two. Oh next yeah, year. Jesus, I'd love to come back on. And yeah, it'd be a pleasure. Just uh, I've not read really to plug. I've got a podcast called the Blind Boy Podcast. Give it a listen if you want to. Don't if you don't want to. It's great. Go and listen. Okay.
0: To it guys, I, I recommend it guys. And if you haven't, also do check out Adam Curtis's work as well. Um, but yeah, <laughs> and um, November Rain, and November rain. November rain. <laughs> and, and also, yeah, and also and, and Hazard by Richard Marks and Frankie by right. Rod Stewart. Man, just uh, yeah, expand your mind and just and just remember music is to be listened to, not just heard. So, yeah, enjoy Thanks again, man. Blind, Thanks again blind, boy. blind Boy. I appreciate it, man.
1: Thanks,
2: lads. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, Go to danbaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at dainbaptweets or Instagram at dainsnaptiste. Our guest was Blind Boy. You can follow Blind Boy on Instagram and Twitter at blindboyboatclub. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by audio culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at WeAreAudioCulture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQEPodcast. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything.